on the job with Francis Leach. It's on the job, the podcast, all about making your working life better. Francis Leach with you. How are you? Hope you're well. Upfront ask. If you can, give us a rating on your uh, favourite app, wherever you get your podcast from. It helps everyone find the inspiration, the information. And give us a review. We love it. And it's pumping us up the charts. It's all about the algorithms and all that manipulative crap that you have to work with when you uh, enter the digital realm. But if you can do that, we'd love you. If you're here, you must like the pod, and we love you for that too. Hey, we're almost getting to the end of winter in Australia, which is great news. For some of us, it's been bloody cold and really miserable. And we're heading to a wet summer that's going to have its own problems, as we know, with climate change and flooding and whatnot. But we'll cross that very swollen river when we come to it. But we do need to talk about something before we start to feel a little warm in our houses, something that uh, is important. And it was a survey that an organisation called Better Renting has done in recent times about just how much of Australia's rental properties are actually up to standard when it comes to heating and comfort. Now, this is a serious issue because this relates directly to renters' health. And it found that in most rental properties across Australia, in fact, 78% of rental properties across Australia do not meet the World Health Organization guideline for indoor and interior heating of 18 degrees Celsius, which is extraordinary, but it's probably no secret to anyone who's renting a home. And anyone who's renting a home is often more likely to be someone who is working full-time or trying to work full-time as much as they can or is in insecure, casualised work, trying to put together enough hours each week to pay the rent and at the same time afford the huge energy bills that come along with trying to heat a home that isn't built for purpose, that doesn't have the right insulation, that has leaky uh, window and door frames so it's drafty. That means that you go to bed early when you get home because you can't afford the heating, so you just throw on a doona and try and keep warm until the morning. All of this stuff feeds into a really unhealthy environment for workers, and that's why Joel Dignam is joining us from Better Renting. This is On The Job with Francis Leach. Joel, welcome to On The Job. So give us an overall picture of the situation with housing stock in Australia. So the situation is very bad. So across Australia, our homes tend to compare very badly with homes in other parts of the world. And ironically, part of that is because we have a relatively mild winter climate. So what this means is people don't feel the same need to build homes well for the winter. So ironically, end up with colder indoor temperatures compared to much colder places. Renters tend to be worse off again because they're living in properties that are much less efficient. That's partly because renters can't make improvements because landlords are less incentivized to make improvements and tend not to. And also because people who rent tend to be on lower incomes. So they have less money to be spending heating a place in winter or cooling it in summer. Joel, what process did you undertake in order to get a really good snapshot across the country of just how renters were living and what sort of conditions they've been living in? Yeah, so we recently completed our cold and costly work looking at about 75 renters around Australia. What we found is that in the properties we tracked, temperatures were below 18 degrees Celsius about 75% of the time or 18 hours a day on average. That's all over the place. But I think it sort of doesn't quite grasp the reality because in New South Wales, for example, that was 85% of the time, so over 20 hours a day or thereabouts. Tassie was getting closer to 90%. So it's really some parts of Australia where you have the outdoor cold, but also you have particularly low quality properties being part of the problem. Victoria, ACT, SA also tending in that sort of bad direction. Now, 
the group we worked with is not representative of all people renting. You know, there are people renting out there in relatively recently built apartments that, for better or for worse, they tend to do better in winter and stay a bit warmer. But there's certainly millions of people out there in rental properties that just aren't up to scratch. And what really strikes me is that it's not simply a case of, of renting a different place. The properties actually aren't there. Even if you could afford it, there simply aren't enough decent rental properties to house people in the rental sector. I mean, the numbers you've come up with in relation to the number of people who are living in uh, conditions below that World Health Organization standard of 18 degrees Celsius are quite alarming. How has this been allowed to happen? Has there been no standards that are universal across our building codes, which mean that you have to build your house to a certain standard so it's warm enough for people to stay healthy and live in? So in the rental sector, there's a real lack of requirements. In most cases, all that applies is a fairly generic requirement that the property is fit for habitation. Now, I think we'd actually argue that some of these properties aren't fit for habitation and that if you can't actually exist in the lounge in winter, it's not meeting that bar. But probably something clearer and more specific in legislation would help a lot here. And we're, we've been pushing for standards that would specify exactly what rental properties should have or what standard they should meet before they can be rented out. Because as it stands, particularly with how competitive it is in the rental market, people are being pushed in some really substandard properties. What sort of stories and themes were people telling you that uh, seem to reoccur or pop up again and again and common stories and themes about people who are struggling with a house that was too cold to live in? Yeah, so there's there's definitely a couple of things that come through again and again from the renters we've been working with. A really key one is insulation. Now, that's obviously not very visible when you inspect a property, but it becomes pretty clear when you're living there because you turn off the heater and the heat just goes out through the ceiling. And so if people had better insulation in their properties, you'd actually the heat would stay in the living areas that you're heating, and in summer you'd get least, less heat coming in through the ceiling. So that's a, an absolutely critical one. Also, issues with drafts are really common and often go to the age of these properties or how poorly they are maintained. Drafts are absolutely a killer for comfort because the, the warm air is blowing out the door, the cold air is blowing in, and that feeling of having air movement inside the home is a big part of making people feel colder at home. And then the, the third part of the, the, the package is actually just being able to get heat into your home uh, effectively. And so people renting who have access to a reverse cycle heater, for example, they actually can put in enough home heat to get it to a he- warmer temperature, uh, but it's costing them much less to do so as well. So people who are stuck with plug-in heaters, they cost a lot more, but they're also a lot less effective. Joel, insecure work is something that uh, we are very concerned about here at Australian Unions and casualised work and people not having enough hours to work. It's a pretty cruel cycle because then you can't afford to purchase your own home and then do the sort of renovations that you might do to actually make your home more healthy and warmer. So you are in that cycle of being in rental properties that are not warm enough. Is that something that you've seen as a pattern here as well? Yeah, and that's something that that we heard about from people. So obviously part of it is if you're on a lower, if you're on an insecure income in the first place, you're more likely to be in these sorts of properties because you potentially can't compete to get into a better place. But then we also heard from people saying, I'm getting sick more often because my home is cold. It takes me a longer time to get well again, which means I'm missing work, I'm missing paid income. And so as you say, there's this spiral effect, um, particularly for people who don't have access to sick leave, which is compounded by the low quality of these properties. We really should explain the specifics of the health impact of underheated housing. So tell us about some of the conditions that people are living with as a consequence of not having the sort of heating that they need. So there's a few things to the health dimension. So in our sort of cohort, which is probably 
representative of renters in terms of being relatively young. We didn't get that many much older renters. It's more sort of your winter bugs. But people, because their immune systems are weakened from the cold, uh, they're more likely to get sick. They stay sick for longer. People spoke up, you know, going around the whole family, really struggling to hold those things off. You also get respiratory conditions being made worse. That's partly to do with the cold. Also to do with things like damp and mould, particularly for people with asthma. And so that's obviously making it harder. And then people with pre-existing health conditions can have a really terrible time um, fibromyalgia, arthritis, um, Raynaud's syndrome. Like these are things that plenty of Australians are dealing with. And when your home is warmer um, and better quality, it makes it so much easier to deal with that. I also want to mention here the mental health dimension because that's part of this too. A lot of people spoke about anxiety around upcoming energy bills. I guess that's a combination of, of again, the lower income, but also having to spend so much to hit your home. But also just the mental health burden of living in a cold home. You feel like you can't have your friends over. You feel like you can't spend time at home. It's sapping your your vitality, not just in your body, but also in your soul. It's a really nasty bind, isn't it? You're spending your money to try to keep your house warm, but your house is not equipped to stay warm. So you spend more money to keep it warm. So you don't have a lot of disposable cash and it's being eaten up in a futile effort to warm a house that's just not going to do it for you. And that's one of the things that really struck me from this work, that that combination of spending a lot on energy but still being cold in your home is pretty brutal. And we had some people talking about the energy costs they face and and they, you know, might be more than a five-person household in the area when you look at it on the energy bill because it's just so much harder for them to try to stay warm. Uh, and for comparison, someone taking part from Victoria during the course um, of the project, they got an upgraded uh, gas heater and their bill went down from about $10 a day to $6 a day. So just having a better quality, more efficient appliance was saving this person hundreds of dollars over winter. But that's what so many renters are missing out on. Joel, you use this really interesting phrase in the report called fuel poverty, and it's about a different class of person who can't afford to pay the heating bill. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, I think that's why fuel poverty is an important concept because you do have people who have very high power bills and they, they may struggle to pay those, and that can be its own difficulty. But you also have people who have low power bills because they can't, they don't heat their home because they know they can't afford to pay those bills. And that's another form of poverty. You don't see it in the bank statement, but you can certainly see it in the temperature data from these homes that people sort of have a deprivation of warmth and of heat and of the comforts that that's needed for. Well, let's talk remedies now. What's some of the things that uh, Better Renting and other organisations have got an eye across this issue are suggesting need to happen within the rental market and in rental housing to fix this situation? So, the solution in the rental sector has to look different from what it looks like elsewhere because you do have this unique situation with landlords. What better renting and healthy homes for renters have been speaking about is minimum energy efficiency standards for rental homes. We've got really good examples of what that looks like from action in the UK and in Aotearoa, New Zealand, but also Victoria and the ACT have begun to move on this. You basically say, if you're renting out a property, it has to meet certain minimum standards. It might be that it has to have features like ceiling insulation or it has to get an external certification that shows it performs at a certain standard. It's really not too dissimilar to the sorts of certification schemes you might have for food venues uh, or for make sure, making sure that a car is safe to drive. That's a really big part of the problem and it sort of solves the fact that there's this market failure here. We also heard a lot from renters who actually might have a heater in their property, but it's not maintained. It doesn't work and they're worried about asking their landlord to fix it because they're worried about retaliation with a rent increase or an eviction notice. So obviously tightening up tenant protections there, particularly getting rid of no-cause terminations, is really important because it means that those laws can actually work the way they were intended to. I can just hear landlords saying, Joel, 
well, it's all well and good for us to say I need to spend more money on the house that I'm renting, but that just comes as a cost to me. Why should I have to pay more to keep the house to a standard that you want? If people don't want the house that I've got and don't want to live in it, they don't have to. So what do we do with that particular situation? It's a pretty unfortunate argument to hear, and I think that we've really got to understand what's at stake here in terms of people's health. I think if it was as simple as the landlord spends $10 and the tenant saves $10, then, you know, it feels a little bit like a zero-sum game. One, we're talking about one-off investments that will save money for years to come, but we're also talking about people's ability to actually have a home that keeps them healthy. And I think particularly when renters are paying rent for what should be a healthy dwelling, it's actually just making sure that it's up to standard, that it meets the standards expected in that contract. Joel Dignam, thank you so much for being on the job. My pleasure. Thank you. With Francis Leach, this is On The Job. Joel Dignam there from Better Renting, talking to us about the situation with our rental housing in Australia and how it's not built for purpose. It's not built to keep people warm and it's usually workers living in those houses who end up paying the price with their health as a consequence of that situation. Uh, Emma Hartley is a part of the team here at On The Job and Emma spoke with Liam O'Brien who is the Assistant Secretary at the ACTU, who's most concerned and focused on occupational health and safety. And this is an occupational health and safety worker issue. There's no doubt about it because it does flow through to the workplace and people's capacity to earn a living. Let's have a listen now to Emma having a chat with Liam. Why is work health and safety so important to you? Work health and safety is the most important and most arguably the, the fundamental human right when it comes to the world of work. Every worker has the right to a healthy and safe working environment and unions are both the sort of front line in terms of advancing that right, but in particular when it comes to implementing safe work practices, unions have a really fundamental role to make sure that workplaces are as safe as possible. I'm glad you mentioned the word workplaces because I think that is certainly the grey area we are looking at here as we're shifting more to working from home, becoming the new norm now that we are you know, in this pandemic situation. And I think what this report that we're looking at today, so that's the Better Renting report, which Better Renting is a community rental group based in the ACT. They released a report just a few weeks ago called Cold and Costly, where they got over 70 renters across Australia to use smart thermometers to track temperatures in their home during seven weeks of winter this year. And one thing that's important to note is that the World Health Organization says that ideally the healthy minimum temperature is 18 degrees. Now, the average that this report found across these renters was the fact that 18 hours of the day, these temperatures were showing that these homes were actually below that standard 18 degrees minimum. So, With that in mind, um, my first question for you, and as I mentioned before, I will acknowledge that this is a very grey area because we are going into new terrain in this COVID context, but what, in your opinion, are the work health and safety implications for workers who are working from home in these unacceptably cold conditions? It's a really interesting subject. I think one thing COVID's revealed to us is there's been a real paradigm shift in a number of areas when it comes to the world of work, and obviously you know, where you perform your work fundamentally shifted during the pandemic. And in many respects, it offered, you know, benefits to employers and workers who, you know, no longer have to deal with lengthy commutes and can organise their working lives a bit better. It also came with it a number of challenges. And we've touched on one just here in terms of 
the sort of unequal access to good housing and the impact that now not just plays in terms of your life in your home, but when your home is your workplace, which for about a third of the workforce who can perform some or all of their work at home, it was really a big issue during the pandemic. And it's not just in terms of, you know, the thermal qualities of work, working from home in terms of whether it's you know, warm enough or indeed through our summer months in many of our capital cities with lack of air conditioning, you get some pretty oppressive days as well. But also just the basic things that people come to expect in a workplace and that you need in order to be able to perform work in a healthy and safe way. So absolutely, I mean, if we think about, you know, many of our capital cities that plunge to temperatures, you know, well below 10 and in some cases below freezing, we've got real problems when it comes to our housing stock and what that means for people at work. So every worker should have the right to a healthy and safe work environment. That means working in a climate that's acceptable and that doesn't change whether it's in the home or whether it's at the workplace. Mm, For sure. And I think that responsibility to supply such an environment is, you know, something that's now becoming even trickier to decide who exactly is responsible for that because, of course, as soon as you are dealing with a worker who is working from home, of course, the person who is in kind of control of that physical environment is the landlord, right, rather than, you know, the employer, for example, in an office who for one instance, one of the things raised in the report was this issue of mould. Like if you're in an office and you have mould on one of your walls, obviously you you can point to that and your employer has a duty to then address it to make sure that their workers are not inhaling what is frankly a toxic substance, right? But it becomes a bit trickier if you're working from home because of course normally in a non-work situation, you would then expect to call up your real estate agent your landlord and ask them, can you please remove this mould? So it becomes an issue, especially I think because we hear from renters that quite often landlords or real estate agents can be very slow to react. So I think my question in this situation is, is there any responsibility at all of the employer to react in these situations, but particularly so if a landlord or real estate agent isn't as responsive as they should be. Yeah, look, it's a really good point. And it is tricky. It's not a hard and fast rule here. But whether you're doing your work from home, or whether you're doing your work from work or another location, your employer has a duty to ensure that the working environment is safe and healthy. They do that by identifying the risks in your workplace or in the particular environment that you're in and assessing them and then controlling them in whatever way that they can. Now, obviously, when it comes to your personal home where you live, It's a bit trickier because whilst on one hand we're not expecting employers to come in and deal with a completely, you know, refurbishing of your home, the employer still has to meet that duty to ensure that your home is a suitable place for you to work. So it may mean that in some cases that is not the case. And indeed, we saw it through COVID, especially with certain tasks that workers might be expected to perform, that the home is not a suitable location for work to be conducted. That being said, one thing we really need to call out in a country like Australia, which is that when it comes to things like energy efficiency and building standards, we have pretty poor building standards when compared to other developed countries. The report seems to indicate that that's a bit of a feature of being maybe slightly a milder climate, you know, not experiencing those extreme winters. We do experience this extreme heat, I would say. And therefore, we've got some pretty poor building standards that don't necessarily focus on keeping us warm in winter and keeping us cool in summer. And therefore, you know, when we get to the depths of either of those two climates, 
we tend to experience the worst of it. So, you know, I know that's it's not an easy answer when it comes to, you know, what should my employer be expected to do in terms of making sure that my workplace is safe? Well, first step is they have to ensure that where you're working is safe. That might mean they need to provide you with an alternative location for you to do that work. So we need to balance those sort of issues out. But at a fundamental level, that employer has an obligation to make sure that your workplace is safe. Tenants also have rights. You know, we shouldn't be accepting that, you know, mould spores or inadequate thermal sort of heating is appropriate either. And we need to be making sure that tenants are supported to make sure that buildings are up to standard, not just in terms of being able to perform work out of them, but in particular being able to live in them. You've definitely touched on, I think, quite a few larger issues there as well that perhaps go beyond just simple quote-unquote work health and safety. And just, I think, to contextualise this conversation a little bit, I'm just going to read out what one renter described mould like in their own home. They said that mould grows in the bathroom and in any bedroom that is slept in. I have found it growing out of the damp walls and I've had to throw away possessions because of it. The worst experience has been coughing up blood because of mould growing in my pillowcase. I think, yeah, with that in mind, it's so important what you've just said about the fact that an employee is obligated to provide a safe and healthy workplace. Obviously, you know, there's so many other work health and safety issues, you know, take silica dust, where we know that if an employer doesn't act, it will have long-term detrimental effects on the worker themselves. And I think, you know, we are looking at a similar situation here, and you've mentioned you know, issues around energy efficiency and building standards. One thing that renters did identify in the report was on the one hand, there's this cost of living issue where so many renters literally, because they're in low paying jobs, we have wages that haven't moved in around a decade. They're just not able to afford energy bills. But even when they do cough up the ridiculous amount they have to pay for those energy bills, the building standards are so poor and the insulation is so poor that it's still not warm enough. And this is a pretty big question, but what kind of role do you think unions can play when faced with such a systemic housing issue? Well, look, the reality is, is we need governments to act and unions should be campaigning around this as, a, as an issue because, like, as we discussed, you know, for a third of the workforce that were expected to work from home, this became your workplace. And that means that there's a real inequality in terms of the working environments that people have got. And there are some basic standards that should be met. You know, no worker, indeed no Australian, should be living in a house that has mould spores growing where you're getting ill as a result of it. But we need to also think about it in the context of work, and that means that every worker should have the right to be able to work from home, and that means that ensuring that those properties are maintained to a certain level. You know, every Australian should have a home that provides them with the most basic essentials and being able to ensure that you can meet WHO guidelines in terms of what is a healthy climate should be a fundamental right for all Australians, whether you're a worker or whether you're a tenant. But really, when it comes to work, I think the key thing we'd say is that you're never leaving your home then, really. Your recreation's at home and your work is at home, and therefore, you know, we need to pay particular attention to making sure that the workplace is as safe as possible. Yeah, that's kind of all I had come to focus on from the report but was there anything you particularly wanted to touch on or anything you found of particular note in that? The one thing I would say that I think is really interesting especially with regards to COVID and again it goes to this sort of paradigm shift about building quality and standards is that 
setting aside what the report says, actually a lot of our workplaces and a lot of our buildings are built for warmth and you know, keeping us cool in summer. That means they're actually very poorly ventilated spaces. So a little bit incongruous with the report that talks about, you know, we don't build good insulated homes. Actually, what we want to ensure is really good ventilation in homes as well, because in particular, when it comes to respiratory illnesses, you know, we know that poorly ventilated spaces really do increase the, the chances of others being infected and transmitting viruses. So I think one of the key things that also comes out of COVID is not just this working from home challenge that we've got to try and reconcile and what is the healthy balance going forward and what should we expect employers to be ensuring home work office standards meet, but also how do we make sure that our buildings, both our homes, but in particular our workplaces, are both warm but also well ventilated because you know those are really key issues when it comes to managing not just COVID but any respiratory illness. That's actually a really interesting one because my working from home hybrid situation here is I share like this communal office space with my three other housemates and one of them is in fact immunocompromised as well so obviously COVID transmission is something that's you know in the back of our minds always. It's been an interesting thought because Obviously, if I was living alone, there would be a lot less risk of mm. like any of us because we're all hybrid working at the moment, passing it on to each other. So, And, you know, getting that balance right in workplaces but also in homes is really tricky. But I think the report is great and that it really calls out just the poor standard of housing stock that we've got in Australia and it needs to be a collective effort to improve those because that poor stock results in a real unequal access to both safe and affordable housing, but in the context of work, vastly changes your working conditions. Yeah, I think I found it really shocking because having lived in Canberra, I just thought, oh, it's cold because it's Canberra. That's, you know, it's just here. Not until I read that report, just the sheer shock of how bad it was just across the country. Absolutely. Look, Canberra is particularly cold as someone who spends a bit of time there. I can't imagine what poorly, you know, heated homes in Canberra are like, but um, it is something that is clearly happening all across the country, in particular in the southeast. Mm. I'll just finish on this one anecdote, which is in 2018, I was living in a Canberra share house in the south side of Canberra, and we were going into a weekend that was predicted to be what was going to be the coldest weekend thus far that year, and this was in the middle of a Canberra winter, and they were saying that it was going to get to minus five that weekend our heating conked out on the friday night and it was after hours the real estate agency has said they didn't have a phone line after hours unless it was an emergency we didn't call therefore and it was the first time i had lived in a home where i could see my own breath and then we called up on monday morning and the real estate agency was so apologetic she's like no that definitely counts as an emergency sweetheart you can call us no. next time that would have been cold did you, you did, i don't suppose you managed to measure what the temperature got to no we didn't i'm afraid i think bomb said it reached minus four minus five in the end that would be horrible well it doesn't get quite that cold in melbourne but i wouldn't want to be living in a house anywhere in melbourne either without heating and cooling no. well thanks so much for sparing the time cheers
Emma Hartley with ACTU Assistant Secretary Liam O'Brien here on The Job. That's it for another episode. Hope you're keeping warm. I hope you're looking forward to a nice spring wherever you are. You might be in the top end where you only have uh, dry and wet season. If you're heading into the build-up up there, I pray for you. I don't know how you survive all that. My name is Francis Leach. AustralianUnions.org.au is where you go to join your union. And we will catch you on the next edition of On The Job. Bye for now. Thank you.